Listening Dog Media. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins, and this is How to DJ. How to DJ. Equipment was pretty basic, do you know what I mean? And so to be actually be able to mix two records on those was quite an achievement, especially chewing your face, face off. They told me the DJ was sick and what I fell in for him, and I got paid £15. And I was like, oh my God, like £15. DJing is a live environment, it's happening here and now. A podcast exploring life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much-loved DJs where I asked them to pick five questions from a box of 45. And for this episode, a multi-award winning DJ. You get a buzz out of it for five minutes, but I think in life, as in DJ land, you're only as good as your last gig. A lawyer. It's a bit of a contradiction that one was putting on illegal parties back then, albeit in an environment where the law was much more grey, where putting on those sort of events was concerned and it subsequently became the rave era. One of the biggest names in the history of dance music, Judge Jules. Welcome to How To DJ. Thank you for that very uh, flattering intro. (laughs) Before heading into the box of questions, Jules, when did you fall in love with music? Oh, from my earliest memories, and I'm sure that applies to every DJ, really. Probably falling in love with ABBA as a kid, which is showing my age somewhat, because if I was a bit younger, I probably would have been in love with Steps or something something similar. But actually, I'm, Steps are doing all right now, but I think history is particularly kind to ABBA. So whilst for years I was a bit embarrassed about what my first taste was as a tiny kid, actually it's quite a quite a mature vintage isn't it in reality do you remember buying your first record i remember having records bought for me by my by my parents because i was into music before i had pocket money even or certainly before i had enough pocket money to go out and buy records and go to record shops was music an important part of your life growing up would you say music's everything really and i and i think that you know growing up you know, particularly poignant moment to me. I think, I think in the, in the in the backstory of many people in the creative industry, there's a hint of sadness, or there's something that's gone on in one's life, and that that kind of permeates music. And in my case, my mother died when I was 18, and DJing, being a promoter, just absorbing myself in that whole world, took me from being sort of a music hobbyist into totally absorbed, and 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 using that, if you like, as an expression of of grief for a period of time. Did you learn an instrument when you were a kid? Yeah, I learned clarinet, but I probably wasn't very good. I stopped at some teenage point where one decides that other things are more important, I guess. In retrospect, maybe I should have carried on. Were you partying a lot as a teenager? 
I don't think I was partying any more or less than a typical teenager. I mean, the great thing that you don't realise when you are a teenager is it's the point in your life where you have the largest social circle. It almost sort of deteriorates by a factor of half every five years that pass beyond that, to the point at which when you reach my age, notwithstanding being a DJ and being out there, you're almost in negative equity when it comes to the <laughs> amount of friends you've got. But yeah, I was a studious kid who did okay in, in school and went on to university. So it wasn't to the detriment of my studies and to the chagrin of my parents, but I definitely did a lot of partying as well. Did you lose your mum at the... You'd, had you done your A-levels at that time? It was just after I started at university when I, when I was 18, yeah. Did it affect your early, at least early months, maybe year or two at university? I think I was lucky in that I'd moved out of home and moving out of home is arguably the biggest thing that happens in your life virtually because you go from being dependent into being at least up to a point independent. And, and that distraction, I think made a very traumatic time of life slightly more bearable all of which is kind of viewed in retrospect but yes I believe so. And were you heavily into DJing by the time you started at uni? Yes I'd already started so I put on I put on parties when I was 16 we found a venue in North London that was prepared to turn not just one but two blind eyes to people who are very much underage getting into the venue. It was me and a guy called Rollo who's actually the producer or the, the guy behind Faithless and brother of Dido. We were at school together and we put on events together and because you know this enormous amount of people when you're at that age you can put on an event and be certain of people turning up because what have you got age 16 or 17 to do pretty much nothing apart from hanging around at friends houses or in a park what were the early nights the early parties that you put on like well i soon transcended when i once i'd gone to university i transcended into putting on illegal parties and you know fast forward a number of decades and i'm a lawyer albeit specializing in music so it's a bit of a contradiction that one was putting on illegal parties back then albeit in an environment where the law was much more gray where putting on those sort of events was concerned than it subsequently became with the rave era we were putting on things in warehouses in in areas of london that then were abandoned at the weekends and had lots and lots of disused property and now are very buoyant kind of social areas in particular old street stroke shoreditch and and paddington as well were two key areas we put events on in and we did a number of them and again because your social circle is big because we were providing music that wasn't really being played in the clubs and on the radio at the time and um, we were soon able to capitalize on that and they became very successful we did a lot of them were you djing at them I was DJ and promoter. There were, there were five of us, three of whom were, were just on the promoting side and two of us were DJs, the other being Norman Jay. When you're that age, and, and as I say, it's all, it's all tied into kind of an element of throwing oneself into an alternative to quite traumatic stuff at home. You just do what you do. You don't even think about it. Rollo went on to be more of a producer and less of a DJ and was obviously extremely successful doing that. He created Faithless. That was basically his brainchild alongside Sister Bliss and also produced his sister Dido. So we owned a studio together in Packington Street in, in Islington when we were in our early 20s. But actually it was Norman Jay and myself and a few of our mates who, who went on into the promoting of events. So do you remember your first paid DJ gig? What Was that a gig that you paid yourself? It would have been our own gigs. I mean, I, I think there's a there's a huge parallel to establishing a music career in 2023 stroke 24 in that you got to be great at DIY. If you think somebody else is going to do it for you and you can, I don't know, send out demos or tell everybody what a great DJ you are or, or indeed a great musician, it ain't going to happen, baby. You've, you've got to go out and do it yourself. And 
I come from a sort of, I, I guess I come from, you're from London, you know a lot of people, there's a bit of an entrepreneurial buzz about being a North Londoner, dare I say it, and, and that's what we did. For context, in those early days, what were you playing? We were playing old school hip hop, rare groove, and a bit of the house that came along as house began to appear. But it was a bit much more of a mixture of genres, much more of a kind of cross genre situation. Off the top of your head, can you remember some of the actual tunes you were playing then? Oh, of course. I mean, I don't know. Jackson Sisters, I Believe in Miracles, Maceo and the Max across the tracks. And then some of the early hip hop, Public Enemy, Eric B and Rakim. There was some early house as well. And at this time, you were still at university. Yes. Well, it was from the from the beginning of being at university. And that continued once I graduated age 21. With a degree in law. Correct. Yeah. And then what happened? I sort of came out of university. And I think the one the one factor that confuses a lot of wannabe DJs or did back then was what on earth is the career structure here because there wasn't an established career structure for being a DJ stroke producer there were no role models to kind of look up to who were still doing it decades later so I sort of stumbled into being a DJ and I sort of thought well if this doesn't work then I've got a degree from a decent university I went to LSE um, then at least I've got something to fall back on and something to keep my parents or my, my then just one parent quiet because um, a lot of my family members are kind of teachers and academics so it was it was good to have that to fall back on meanwhile not actually at the time for sure wanting at all to do anything normal I just wanted to be a DJ I wanted to play records wanted to promote events increasingly wanted to make tunes and and was part, dare I say, of the genesis of it being an industry. And it's only now that it's an industry that people can have a career out of it. So you decided to park the law for now at this time and really go all out for promoting and DJing. Was there a tipping point when things got big? No, I don't, I don't think there's a eureka moment. I mean, if there was any one eureka moment, it would be joining Radio 1 because that's the kind of, if you like, the pinnacle of new music of playing new music on the radio to a particular age and demographic but of course careers and life doesn't really work like that it doesn't work by way of highlight moments you just one chips away one chips away one chips away one especially if you're you're it sounds so cold and and kind of corporate to say it but if you're brand building i did i never considered myself to be brand building this is all kind of looking back on things in retrospect but if you are brand building from scratch People aren't going to know about what you do overnight. It's a very slow process of acknowledgement by a thousand cuts to mix my metaphors a little bit. But things did escalate quickly for you, didn't they? Well, I was lucky. I was on I was on the then pirate station Kiss FM. A bit of an about turn now because I'm on Kistry, the their their sort of I don't know the son of station or daughter of. Kiss as a pirate was very different from the pirate stations that were about at the time in that it was very reflective of clubland, whereas most other pirate stations back then came more out of sort of Afro-Caribbean culture. So there were a lot of reggae stations, for example, but there wasn't a station, another pirate station that was just purely music based. You know, if you were good and you were doing something as a DJ, you could come from any background and you were and you were a scenester, dare I say it, then you were part of that that family. KISS then went on to become legal, as everybody probably can surmise by now. It took a while, took a few years after I was on there. And from there, I went on to, to, to Radio 1. And of course, being in the pre-social media era, in the pre, I don't know, uh, Instagram, or especially the social media era where you actually can glean a little bit more about DJ's personalities. You know, at the time, having this dual heritage of being somebody who was 
51% a club DJ and 49% a radio DJ was such such a competitive advantage because some people know who you are. They can discover who you are. And there was no means of their doing that, even if they were big fans of what you did and you were pure club and kind of rave DJ, you still didn't really get the opportunity to be something as a person beyond your playlist. I think you found DJing easy. You, you, it seems like it, it was it was something it feels like you had always done. How easy was the radio for you? I think the best way to describe me on the radio when I was young was not survival of the fittest, but survival of the least unfit. And I was unfit, but then there were more unfit people (laughs) also on the early stations that I was on. What was Radio 1 like when you were there? I joined Radio 1 at a time when it went beyond... Some dance coverage, obviously Pete Tong had been there, on there for a long time and continues to be there to this day. The, Danny Rampling was on, but there, weren't, there wasn't really much other dance coverage. And when I joined, it was for two shows, Friday, Saturday night, really ramping up the presence. It was 1997 at a time when dance music was exploding both domestically and globally. You'd already been named DJ of the year by then. I had, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, don't know, I never know quite what to say about that because... You get a buzz out of it for five minutes, but I think in life, as in DJ land, you're only as good as your last gig. So you shouldn't you shouldn't think, wow, I've been named DJ of the year. That makes me great forever, forevermore. It doesn't. In the mid 90s, what were your favourite residencies? Oh, there were loads. I mean, Gatecrasher was a big one. In the, in the, in the latter part of the 90s, Gatecrasher, in the early part of the 90s, Cream. But there were there was a period during the late 90s when there were good specialist dance clubs in every major town and small you know cities large and small it was this phenomenal sort of infrastructure that existed whereby that was sort of independent of regular club land and there's a bit of regret in that there are many less clubs now than the vast majority of my shows are events one-off events or festivals at the time there were way more clubs and it was just this you know go to a different town sometimes up to three a night that were sufficiently sort of disconnected geographically from one another. And uh, they were all good. I mean, it's no exaggeration to say everything was good. When was your first Ibiza? First went to Ibiza in 1988 to play at Pasha. A a British promoter took me there. And it was was a very different place then, it's got to be said. And I, I... Ironically, my last gig that I've done prior to recording this was was also in Ibiza many, many years later. And it was amazing. Just a very different amazing. Why is it so special? It's the epicentre of global clubbing culture. It's got really well thought out venues with a lot of love that's been applied. I think the size of the island is significant as well because, yes, Ibiza is too expensive. And I find it a bit uncomfortable how expensive it's become if you're just going there as a clubber. And a lot of people talk about Croatia supplanting Ibiza for that reason. But in truth, there isn't really one concentrated area in, in Croatia with lots of clubs. Croatia as a destination is far more disparate. Or if you were to go to its, you know, its sister island, which I love very much, Mallorca, again, there's, it's too big and too disparate. So, so I think that the, the small size of Ibiza is, is, a, is a big factor as well. How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. So, Radio 1, 1997, things are massive. I can't even imagine how your diary was. 
It was, I mean, it was very, very busy. But I, I, I find it, I mean, I don't generally look back on that aspect of it because I'm more astonished how busy my diary is now, really, to tell the truth. Were you able to enjoy it along the way? I wake up every day. I had, I had a conversation, actually, with a really well-known DJ of a sort of generation younger than me about this precise point. I, there is not a day that I don't wake up where I don't count my lucky stars, how blessed I've been. Of course, there's been a lot of work done. There's been, you've got to have the right aptitude for it. But to be paid to do what you would almost pay others to let you do is such a blessing. Tell me how the 90s turned into the noughties for you. Well, I guess there were key moments. It, it, it's interesting because there's been some market research conducted by Schweppes about the noughties where it has been determined by a substantial proportion of the population that the noughties were the most fondly remembered decade. And the funny thing about the noughties is a lot of people's memories from the noughties, they conflate with the 90s and they think it happened in the 90s, but it didn't. It actually happened in the noughties. And I suppose the biggest career milestone for me of the noughties was starting my very long-standing residency Judgment Sundays in Ibiza, which kicked off in June 2000. Having six months earlier done a huge millennium event to herald the, the, the dawning of the, of the new century and millennia. But I think because, because one tends to sort of conflate those two decades quite a lot, people, when people think of the 90s, they often think of the late 90s, but they're also thinking about the early noughties for whatever reason. So it, it's quite hard to get people to date stamp certain records that came out during that sort of 10-year window. I had the best of times in the noughties. I was living in London for the first time and had 10 amazing years. Do you remember the music that you were really into at that time? I don't think, I think that it was just an evolution of what I was doing in, in, in the 90s. It was more, probably a little bit more trance orientated, whereas up until the end of the 90s, it was a little bit more fast house. I've always, I'm a Londoner, but I've always been a kind of northerner at heart or, 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 even, a Scot, or even Scottish or from Northern Ireland at heart, where generally speaking, the crowds like things a bit faster, and a little bit more banging to the extent that it doesn't sound sort of, really blinker to try and differentiate between the tastes in different regions of the UK but I think there is there are clear regional differences certainly the first half of the decade was very trancey it was the big moments for trance how do you think club culture changed over that decade well over the course of the decade the big change was really the the growth of events and festivals I, rem I remember probably around the beginning of the noughties I was I was only doing a handful of festivals every summer because there weren't very many that were, at which either DJs were relevant or were dedicated to electronic music whereas there were just clubs everywhere doing fantastic things increasingly some of the some of the super clubs including Gatecrasher and Cream for example stopped opening their doors on a weekly basis and you saw this evolution towards event-based clubbing and, and that evolution has really continued to the present day. What about the evolution of DJing, the actual skill of DJing? I remember seeing Roger Sanchez in the business lounge at Barcelona Airport, and we were both flying to Ibiza. In a flight case, he had a CDJ. It wasn't 1000. It was an early CDJ, an early uh, CD mixer. And I was really interested because I'd never seen this before. And I remember Maro Picotto bringing his demos on CD and playing them on the early CD mixes and thinking, oh my God, I'm never going to be doing that. I couldn't put a date on it, but that would be around the 90s into the noughties. And fast forward to now, when there are essentially two ways of DJing. You either use a laptop, which does the mixing for you, or there are 
predominantly pioneer CDJs. They've been the tools of my trade now for sort of 15 or more years. And there are many reasons why I prefer them to vinyl. And some people would will switch off the moment I say that because there's a, there's a real kind of Luddite sort of mentality towards technology on the, in, in some people's case. But you know, the reason I prefer the digital world, bearing in mind that I mix, I don't, it is not doing the mixing for me, and nor is it doing the mixing for most of the DJs I know who use Pioneers. One, you can edit the, the tracks yourself so that you can make your own versions of things, which you can never do with vinyl. Vinyl was long. Old records, old dance records are long. They tend to be six or seven minutes long on average, and they're probably too long for the current market. Secondly, the fact you can start and stop them immediately. So it makes mixing quicker because with vinyl, you had to find the beginning of the record, kind of cue it up and away you went. And I think spontaneity and speed of mixing, certainly that's my style. It wouldn't be the style of everybody. Some people like it longer and more evolving. But the the obvious one is they just don't scratch. I mean, I'd, I'd get a record generally through the post. My poor old postman would turn up in the vinyl era with a sack full of vinyl it was particularly on a friday in advance of the weekend i'd listen through to them i'd find the ones i wanted to play over the weekend you'd get to the breakdown you'd play them they sound okay by saturday playing them the second time you get to the breakdown and you'd hear <coughs> so i think this you know, it's easy to be nostalgic about vinyl and vinyl looks great the packaging's good the kind of i don't know the wall accoutrement element of, of vinyl is great but actually, in all other respects, I'm very pleased we moved to the, the hardware and the software that we use now. Of course, we've evolved beyond CDs on the, on the CDJs. We now, we've now evolved in the era of memory sticks, whereby multiple decks can play simultaneously different tracks of the same memory stick, which to me would have completely spun me out as a concept when I was younger, but that's what they do. And of course, memory sticks have vast capacity. I mean, you can get a, a memory stick from, from Amazon for like 15 quid, that's 128 gig. You probably get more than that now, I don't know. But that is, I mean, 128 gig is a phenomenal amount of music, arguably too much, it could confuse you. Is there then, safe to say, never a time that you miss lugging flight cases and, and record bags around mm, the world? Most definitely not. I mean, I, years and years ago, I did a gig. I remember where it was, actually. I was going from France to Jersey, and I went via Gatwick. And I arrived in Jersey for my gig and no records. And that was the one and only time I allowed that to happen. So from then on in, I always took my vinyl as hand luggage. Problem being that, that vinyl is really heavy in any quantity. So one would always, I'd always have it in a shoulder bag slung over my shoulder, sort of hiding it as you gave your boarding card in going onto a plane. And the moment I most realized that I didn't miss vinyl was when I was sat about to go under anesthet general anesthetics, have a shoulder operation about 10 or thereabouts years ago, as a result of having to do that for all those years. Jules, it's time for the first of your five picks from 45 in this record box at my side. All the questions are on 45 sleeves. You say when, I'll dip into the box, okay? Go. What's the best view from a DJ booth? For me, when the crowd's very close to you, um, the well, clearly a big crowd, that goes without saying, but it's when the crowd's closest to you because sometimes at festivals, there's a... There's a unnecessary need to put the decks too far back on the stage and put the kind of crash barriers between the crowd and the decks too far away so for me it's where you can see the whites of people's eyes inevitably my favorite gigs are where the crowd is a bit closer and where i've got a choice i.e., at those gigs where there's there's not multiple other dj requests and lots of other people 
uh, other artists making conflicting choices, I always ask this, the, the sound guys to move the decks forward towards the crowd. Back into the box for question two, Jules. Say when. Let's go. What's the best lineup you've ever appeared on? That's a tough one because I don't really pay much attention to what lineups I'm on. I know what events I'm doing. I might pay attention to who's on before me, but I, I'm not. I, I feel that you should perform to the best of your abilities wherever you are and not sort of revel in who's around you. I mean, I suppose the best lineups for me would all, would be my Judgment Sundays nights in Ibiza because I've chosen the lineup. In most other situations, I haven't had any contribution. My management might say there's a certain other DJs that they don't think are appropriate to be on the same lineup, but we try not to be too kind of diva-like in that respect. But yeah, where one has chosen the lineup, which I did for sort of the, the near on 20 years of my Ibiza residency, I guess that's, you know you're amongst friends. Who are your DJ heroes? I guess it's the people you grew up with. There was a guy called Vaughan Toulouse who passed away years and years ago, who was the resident DJ at a club called Dodos when I was at university. And they used to play really, really sort of cheesy disco, but I'd never heard cheesy disco in a really good envi an environment with a great sound system. So he would, anybody that's really sort of for, forged your love for clubbing culture has got to be up there. I mean, I guess it's a very obvious answer and he's a friend and actually I look after him in legal capacity as well, but Carl Cox has got to be up there as well for, for sheer energy, sheer, for demonstrating that it's not just about the music and I'm not saying the music's not great with Carl because of course it is, but it's about the, the energy that you exude. There are very few successful DJs who are big crowd pullers who don't have an enormous charisma or an enormous kind of presence behind the decks. It's so important and in some circles, underrated. And Carl Cox has got it all. Uh, certainly presence, wow. All right, back into the box for your third question, Jules. Say when. Let's go. Who do you have to thank? I think Norman Jay owes a, I owe a huge debt of gratitude to Norman Jay because whilst we started putting on events together and it was the, the events we put on together, the illegal parties that were a massive stepping stone every career every artistic career in any sphere of the arts involves multiple stepping stones but some stones are kind of bigger and bolder than others and Norman is you know a fair few years older than me and is hugely respected as a as a encyclopedia of musical knowledge and as an 18 year old I didn't purport to be that encyclopedia of mus musical knowledge I knew what I knew I knew what I'd grown up with but actually there were whole chunks of of music culture especially black music culture that I just didn't know about and he was quite guarded with his knowledge to everybody else but literally opened his mind and his record box to me question four for you now coming up Jules say when let's go what's your best DJ moment and and when have you had your biggest nightmare Best DJ moments, I suppose, are the ones that are for the album, if you like, the ones that are for the photo album. There have been a few incredible locations that I've done that are just stand out. DJing in front of the pyramids of Giza in Egypt, where it was the backdrop to my DJ set. I was the, I was the first DJ ever to perform there. The only two other artists who were Sting and Jean-Michel Jarre had done shows there before. Been a few others like that, DJing in at the Sydney Cricket Ground before the Ashes in front of the Barmy Army, doing a sort of DJ sound clash with an Australian DJ, on, on literally on the pitch. I'm not a massive cricket fan, but when you're in that environment, wow. 
I've done a lot. I'm a, I'm a really ardent Arsenal sport and I've done quite a bit of DJing in that environment as well. So, but I don't want to get too kind of political or kind of, I don't want to get people switching off the minute you mention football. <laughs> what about biggest nightmares? Have you had any? I think there've been plenty of nightmares. I think as a DJ, you cut your teeth on the nightmares. You probably learn more from the nightmares than you do from the good times. I'm lucky enough that the vast majority of what I do is is busy and well attended, but I think it's very very beneficial doing shows that aren't well attended and working out how to not not get a sort of fat lip about it, but to actually perform to everybody who's in the room, even if it's significantly less people than you normally would do. And then I've done I've had any all manner of negatives, you know, police raiding the events, the whole dance floor fighting with one another. I mean, these are these are rare, but they've all happened. People letting off CS gas in the club, sound system breaking down, events cancelled due to weather. I mean, every every all manner of negatives. But as long as the negatives are vastly outweighed by the positives, I'm all good with it. Your final question from the box now, Jules. Say when. Let's go. Your final question from the box is, now I want you to have a moment. Well, maybe you have an instinctive answer, but I'd love a Judge Jules thoughtful answer, if possible, to this. How does being a DJ make you feel? Dare I say it, I'm a bit, I, I don't know if we swear on this, but I'm a bit of a gobshite and I can probably talk my way out of a, a paper bag. But the one thing it's impossible to explain to people is how it feels being a performer in front of an audience unless you've done it. And of course, I've had many of my friends, I was out in Ibiza a couple of days ago, I had many of my friends in the DJ booth, but even they, who are sort of immediately behind me, you can't, it's, you just cannot explain how, how it is because you've just your music is from the soul music is from the is from the heart and to control the emotion um albeit you know if you do your job properly but to control the emotion the mood the energy the vibe of everything around you is just an incredible experience and of course some gigs get 10 out of 10 in that respect some go rarely lower than sort of seven and a half out of 10 in that respect but unless you've lived it and i'm sure it's sort of it's a similar but slightly different vibe, whatever form of the arts you're in, if you're in a in the performance sphere. But that's about as far as I can go in explaining it. You've sort of either lived it and experienced it, or you haven't. And it's, I guess, the the love for that and the almost the drug that is that experience is what kept has what's kept me going into my fourth decade of DJing. And do you think you've regularly felt euphoric? I think after DJing, I always feel euphoric, with, without question. Even if it's you know whether it's the 10 out of 10 or the seven and a half out of 10 gig always feel euphoric. I, the thing is, I don't think I would still be doing this now if you can't fake it. You you either absolutely live it or it's one of those jobs. But I think, that, and I think it applies to the music industry as a whole. There is no middle ground between being a part timer or being in it 48 out of 24 hours of the day, literally. Jules, this has been very special. Thank you so much. Thank you kindly. I have one last question for you. It's the end of the world and you've got to play the last three records on earth. What would they be? I think Art of Noise, Moments in Love. I mean, I'm sort of picking out things that I played on my sort of end of the world playlist, which has got about 150 tracks in it, most recently in my car. Man Parish, Hip Hop Bebop, or Don't Stop. And Joe Smooth, Promised Land. 
Awesome. Jules, thank you so much. Cheers. And that was How to DJ. How to DJ. How to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from.